Guys, I invite you, if you have a copy of His Word, to open up to Romans chapter 10. We're going to be continuing with this sermon series, Sola Scriptura. As we've been looking at the foreordination, the sovereign election, understanding God's sovereignty better, understanding what it means to be sovereign, what it means to have foreordained. And last week we looked at free will and how our free will choice ultimately comes from the Lord. And then this week what we want to do is look at two facets this week and next week, which really tend to be the, the argument that Christians, non-Christians, pagans, heathens, whatever word you want to use, want to ultimately press into whenever it comes to the understanding of God's sovereignty. And you may have heard it said, whenever someone says, well, if God is sovereign, if God ordains all things, if he is completely in control of everything down to the smallest piece of dust and where it blows in the wind of a room, then why should we pray? What is the point in praying? Why should we evangelize? What is the point in evangelizing? So this week, what I want to do is I want to concentrate predominantly on, on why we should pray in the midst of God's sovereignty. And hopefully by God's grace next week will lead us into why we should then evangelize and how evangelism and prayer comes into a better understanding of God's sovereignty and what we as followers of Jesus are called and commanded to do by Jesus as we read in Matthew 28 when he commands us to go into all the world and proclaim the good news of the gospel. And I believe that, that Paul understands this as he comes to the same question that, that we have to ask this morning. If God is truly sovereign, then what is the point in prayer? And Paul really finishes off chapter 9 talking about the, the uh, remnant of Israel and Gentiles. And he, he comes to a point in chapter 10 verse 1 whenever he, it reads, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, them being the brothers that he has, the, those who are the descendants of Abraham, Israel, his heart's desire for them, his prayer for them is that they may be saved. So Paul has just finished off right from Romans 8 through Romans 9, coming into Romans 10, putting out a masterful display of the sovereignty and the election of God's people. And then he comes to this point in chapter 10 when he says that he prays his heart's desire is for them to be saved. And immediately you'd think, well, why would he put that in there whenever he's just explained that it's only by God's election that someone can be saved. It's only by God's foreordained knowledge he has predestined their adoption right the way back from the beginning of time. So then what use, what point is there, Paul, in even saying that you're going to pray for them and even saying that your heart's desire is for them to be saved? What I want to do is I want to unpack those phrases, heart's desire, prayer, and probably the time will escape us to be saved next week. When it comes to heart's desire, of, we're going to be jumping around a lot, so I've put the passages on the screen so that you can follow with me, having to save you to turn to them. And heart's desire is better understood whenever we see it in the Psalms. We read in Psalm 37, 4 through 6, Take the light in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. It's a verse that many people understand, many people know. A lot of prosperity teachers have taken it and completely ripped what the true meaning is of this text and of the point of the scripture. But it was says there is, go back to that, take the light in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now we know that Paul has a huge delight in the Lord. We know that Paul has a huge delight in the gospel and understanding of the Lord and his heart's desire 
is ultimately given to him by having a new heart from the Lord. We looked at that last week on how we have free will choice based upon what is the strongest inclination in your heart. And that is normally placed there by the Lord, either softening your heart or by the Lord hardening your heart. So ultimately this passage comes to light when we understand whenever we're taking delight in the Lord, whenever we see Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, whenever we have the Holy Spirit indwelling within us, our heart's desire is changed. Our our longings are changed, where our treasure is, is changed, and therefore He will give you the desires of your heart, because if your desire is to see people saved, well, whenever you were blind and wretched and pitiful in your old trespasses, you didn't have that desire. So Paul says here, my heart's desire, which is given to him through the Holy Spirit, is to see people saved. We also see this playing out through in Proverbs 16, verse 9. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Our heart's desire is for something, and it is the Lord's sovereign hand that establishes those desires in our hearts to make us walk in his ways and his steps. We see it also in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Very few, if any, in this room could say before you came to the truth and the understanding and the illumination of a need for a Savior, which is the gospel. We've said it many, many times. What is the gospel of someone asks you? Yes, it is to believe and to repent and to be baptized. But the depth of that is an understanding that you came to a realization that you were dead, you were wretched. You were a sinner. You were separated from God. And that was given to you by God. You could not come to that realization by yourself. Because you were dead in your trespasses. Therefore where your heart is. There your treasure is also. You will never have a heart for Jesus Christ. You will never see Jesus Christ as a treasure. Until you come to the realization of a need of a saviour. Therefore where your treasure is there your heart will be also if you don't see Christ as a true treasure you, he won't be completely dominating your life completely dominating your heart you'll not have that love for him you'll not have a desire to worship him you'll not have that desire to lift up his name and magnify him as Lord and Savior Matthew 6 but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added on to you very much self-explanatory, everything that we're saying, again, repeated by Jesus, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and everything else will be added to you. Once our desires have been shifted from selfish gain, once our desires have been shifted from being all about my kingdom, once I start to seek after his kingdom, then these things will be added onto us. And the final one, I think, is Psalm 37. Down one, yeah? Psalm 37, verses 4 through 6. Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires placed there by the Holy Spirit in your heart. So we come back to this passage whenever Paul says, My heart's desire and prayer is that they will be saved. We can understand that that's where it has to start. We're never going to pray. We're never going to fast. We're never going to seek after the things of the Lord. We're never going to want others to be in the kingdom until our hearts are changed. 
So therefore we understand that the only way that we will ever truly want the things coming to fruition in our heart is by God changing your heart, taking your heart of stone and turning it into a heart of flesh. And at that point your desires will be changed. At that point your prayer life will be dramatically changed. That's why we read if you read in James 5, 16 through 18. It says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We understand that prayer is multifaceted. It is predominantly communion with the Lord. We know that we come to understand who God is. We enter into that personal relationship with God through prayer. But we also understand that our prayers are mighty in their working. As James spells out for us, they're the prayer of a righteous person. Well, who is righteous? We are righteous through Christ Jesus. We're not righteous by works. We're not righteous by how much knowledge we have of Scripture. We're not righteous by any other thing apart from faith alone, in Christ alone. We are given, His righteousness is given to us. Therefore, the prayers of the righteous, who are the righteous? Anyone who truly believes, anyone whose treasure truly is Jesus Christ, anyone whose heart's desire has truly been changed, by the Holy Spirit. Therefore your prayers are mighty in their working. Because they are aligning with the sovereignty of God. Therefore we are called to pray. And know that our prayers are powerful. And he cites an example for us to follow in Elijah. Whenever he says Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Amen to that. There was nothing special about Elijah. Even though he was a magnificent prophet. He was a man of, of high magnitude of the Old Testament. He is one of my favorite prophets of the Old Testament. And yet I can have a strengthening in myself and uplifting in myself to know that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it would not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. One man exactly like us, heart's desire to see God's kingdom advanced. And he prays and it does not rain for three years and six months. Maybe there's somebody in Northern Ireland who continually is praying because we seem to have the opposite. But setting, setting that aside, this is a truth that we have to come to understand. If someone comes to you and says to you, well, what is the point in praying if God is truly sovereign? We can say because our prayers are mighty in their working. We can cite people like Elijah and others. If you turn with me, Mark Romans will come back to turn me to 2 Kings. We see this played out in 2 Kings 19. We read in 2 Kings 19 about Hezekiah. And Hezekiah has a major conflict on his hand. The Assyrian army is coming to destroy the kingdom of God. Hezekiah in verse 19, or sorry, chapter 19, verse 14, receives a letter from the Assyrian army. And it reads, Hezekiah received a letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, Enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, 
and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods. For the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they were destroyed. And verse 19 says, So now, O Lord our God, save us please from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. What is his heart's desire? Save me, God. No. His heart's desire is, God, we want to be saved so that your name may be magnified. My heart's desire and my prayer right now is I want your name to be magnified because all other gods have fallen at the hands of the Assyrians, but they weren't gods. They were gods made by men. You are not formed by any man or any hand. You are not stone. You are not wood. You are not clay, gold, bronze, or silver. You are the I am. You are God. And oh Lord, hear my plea. Hear my prayer. So that what, as he says at the end, So he says that all the kingdoms of earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. The desire of his heart is to magnify God. The desire of his heart is to see God's kingdom advanced. And yet, someone could say, what is the point in praying? God has foreordained what was to come to pass. And yet we see here written plainly for us that our prayers are the very thing that is going to see that foreordination come to pass. Our prayers are crucial. Our prayers are important. He had the choice to pray or not to pray. And he chooses because of his heart's desire to pray. And we read what God does. It says in verse 20, Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Your prayer to me about Zanakram, king of Assyria, I have heard. We have the ability to come before the living God Almighty in the midst of a God who is completely sovereign, in the midst of a God who mercifully shows us the grace of sanctification through the atonement of Jesus Christ that we enter in by no merit of our own but simply by Him and He will hear your plea. It's a magnificent power that we can wield as Christians. That God Almighty, the sustainer of the heavens and the earth, hears your prayers. He says he has heard. And this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. And he goes down through many things. But we'll jump to verse 32 where it says, Therefore, in chapter 19, Thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mounted against it. By the way that he came, by the same way he shall return and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And verse 35 says, And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrian. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Zanakram, king of Assyria, departed and went home to live in Nineveh, where he was ultimately killed by his sons. The power of Elijah's prayer it does not rain for years. The power of this man's prayer means that 185,000 people were destroyed and struck down by an angel. We have power in our prayer. 
God uses our prayers, folds our prayers in a way that I cannot explain it. We cannot comprehend it. But we have to come to the truth that what would be the point in praying to a God if he was not sovereign? What would be the point in praying to a God that did not have control over our hearts? What would be the point in praying to a God, Oh Lord, save this person. Oh Lord, set us free. And him to stand back and go, I'm not in control. I am impotent to be able to stop him. I can do absolutely nothing. That is no God at all. And we need to come to a point in saying, whenever people say, what is the point in praying to a God that is sovereign? We must say back, what is the point in praying to a God that is not sovereign? That does not have complete and ultimate control over every single facet of every single thing that happens in this world. Let me read on with his example of, of Hezekiah in chapter 20. It says, in those days Hezekiah became sick and, as, and was at the point of death. When Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle of the court, the word of the Lord came to him, Turn back and said to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. We need to underline that in our Bible. God hears your prayer. He heard Hezekiah's prayer, and I have seen your tears, and behold, I will heal you. These are the examples of the importance of prayer and that no one has ever understood divine sovereignty in the middle of prayer, divine sovereignty and foreordination better than Jesus. Jesus who spent more time praying, we read about the scriptures, than any other. Jesus who understood fully the Trinity, the Godhead, understood how God the Father worked, understood every aspect of everything that Paul is unpacking here, and yet we see Jesus never saying, what is the point in praying? We see him continually getting alone, spending time with the Father, discerning God's will, having his heart molded and changed and led by God through the Holy Spirit as fully, sorry, truly God and truly man. Fullness of God, veiled in flesh, who was Jesus. Why would he need to pray? Why would God, who is the Son, need to pray to the Father? Because he wanted two things. He wanted communion with his Father. And he also wanted to hear his prayers answered. And Jesus knew that although God is completely sovereign, God is completely in control, that he has foreordained all things that is to come to pass, that he folds his prayers into his magnificent will in ways that I cannot explain to you. We read this in the Gospel of Matthew. If you turn with me to chapter 26. Chapter 26, 36. Here we have Jesus. He's at the point when he knows that his night to be given up is at hand. He knows that Judas is on his way with the party that's been sent by the Pharisees to take him away to his crucifixion. Jesus knows what will have to happen. Jesus understands 
that this is the will of the Father. Jesus understands God is sovereign. And yet we have a picture here. An amazing insight into how our prayers go before the Father. And he says in verse 36. that Jesus went out with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples. Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them. My soul is very sorrowful. Even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I know your will, God. I know that you have predestined this very night to come to pass from the beginning. Before you laid the foundations, before you drew the lines of the earth. Before you even spoke light into existence, you had predestined this very night to come to pass. And here I am in the midst of your sovereignty, in the midst of your foreordination, in the midst of everything that your hand has waited to come to pass. And yet what does Jesus do? He goes to the Father, he falls on his face and he says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I understand your sovereignty. I understand that you are completely in control. But I also know that if there was another way that you would hear my prayer and that you would grant to me. And then Jesus also understands that in the midst of his sovereignty, he says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I am completely in faith of what you have planned. If there's any other way, let it come to pass. If there's any other way that this can happen, if there's any other way for the people of the earth to be redeemed, then Father, I pray now that you bring it to the fore. I pray now that it folds into your magnificent sovereign will. Yet, nevertheless, I understand that you, God, are working all things for good. That you, O Lord, can see the higher picture. That you, O God, can see and understand why I will have to go through this very thing tonight. And Father God, therefore I lay my life before you, a sovereign God, completely in control, knowing that the devil cannot accomplish anything outside of your complete and ultimate control. And again in verse 40, it says, And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. We understand that God is completely, sovereignly in control. Yet he says to Peter and the others, why don't you pray? Pray what? Lead me not into temptation. There's strength. There's power. It's active in your prayer life. If you're struggling with anything, we come to the Father in communion and prayer and we ask him. You do not have because you do not ask, he says. Lead me not into temptation. He cites his disciples to say, your prayers can keep you from temptation. Well, how does that work, Jesus, in the midst of the sovereignty of God? We can't even expound that or explain it because the peak is too high, because we are small, insignificant, and fleshly. But these are the truths of God's word. Pray. Do not be led into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, Jesus went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later. 
the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go and see my betrayer is at hand. If there's any other way, God, make it happen. If there's any other way, Father God, I know that you hear my prayer. Yet, in the midst of that, I will completely depend on what your hand has decreed. If you hear my prayer and you fold it in, praise be to your name for giving me the desire of my heart for another way. But ultimately, no matter what the way, I trust and have faith in you. That's prayer. My heart's desire, my prayer. So in the midst of sovereignty, why do we pray? That's why we pray. God hears our prayer. God folds our prayers into his sovereign will. The next is, is that they may be saved. We'll go into this more next week. But ultimately, why pray for anyone's conversion if God is chosen before the foundation of the world? Why should we pray? Is that not what people will say? What is the point in praying? I would go back and say, what is the point in praying if he has not chosen, if he has not elected? How can he possibly fold or shape or mold someone's heart if he doesn't have complete sovereign access? We like to think, a lot of people like to think, no, it's my choice. God doesn't mess with my free will. I can choose or I can't choose. Well, what's the point in praying? If God has no impact on your brothers or sisters, if God has no impact on their eyes to hear, to see the gospel, their ears to hear, what is the point? The point is we pray because he is sovereign. We pray because his hand is the only hand that can lead them to himself. And we see this and we understand that we pray this because of Ephesians 2. It's on the screens behind me. Put these up. Ephesians 2, verse 1. We understand that and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Why do I pray? Because they're dead. There's no way that they will ever accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior because they're dead. As much power as you have to walk up to the graves today and to cry over the, over the graves and say, Rise, you have the power to make somebody accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They are dead in their sins and they are dead in their trespasses. We see this as well in Romans six seventeen. We pray because they are slaves of sin. It says, but thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. You were once slaves. They are slaves. Slaves to the God of this world, the devil. Slave to their trespasses, slave to their sins, blinded to the truth. This is why we have to pray for the conversion. We have to pray for God to move. We see this also in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. That the God of this world has blinded the, the, the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. How are we in our flesh meant to fight against the God of this world? The devil and the demonic forces who has blinded everyone. The reason why the, this church and other churches aren't overflowing with the good news of the gospel that we understand. The understanding that there is a treasure here that is free, that is the gospel, is the very fact that they are blinded to the need of it. What is the gospel? You were once blinded to the need of the Savior. That is why you believed and repented. We also pray, not just because of this, but we also pray because of Ephesians 4, 18. We pray because they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. 
How can they soften their own hearts? It is an impossibility. How could we soften our hearts? We cannot. It was God who moved and who led us to himself. We also will finish in Romans 8, verse 7, which says, For the mind that is set in the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Why do we pray? Because they cannot. They are hostile to God's law. They cannot uh, obey what it is that God has called them to because they are blind, dead, and slaves to the God of this world. How does this change? Sovereign mercy we looked at. How does it change? God's sovereign mercy, as we looked at over the past two weeks. The only hope that we have, the only thing that we can pray, if you know somebody who is lost, in the midst of the sovereignty and the pre-ordination election of God, we pray that he will have sovereign mercy. And we see that in John 6.65, and he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. How are they going to be saved? They cannot, unless it is granted to them by the Father. We also see it in John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Set aside man's fleshly work. Set aside entertainment. Set aside everything that may draw a crowd. But if you want to know how people are truly going to be born again, truly saved, and truly desire to walk in the statutes of God, because they need God's sovereign mercy to soften their hearts and to draw them to himself, and that is the only chance that they have. So what do we pray? Father, please, Lord, we pray for your sovereign hand to touch them. We pray for you to open their eyes. We pray, Lord, because you are completely in control. You and you alone can change their free will. Without that... There's a God that people believe in that does not exist. They're praying to a God that is not sovereign, that they believe, that is not in complete control, and does not affect anyone's free will ever. And I want to ask, how then does that God illuminate somebody to the need of a Savior without affecting their free will? It's an impossibility. That God does not exist. Therefore, we pray for unbelievers in the same way that we read in Acts. We'll go into this more next week in Acts 16. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of... There we go. A seller of purple goods who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart. No, he can't open her heart. Because I don't believe in a God who affects free will. I don't believe in a God that is, that, is, that, is not, that is sovereign. I do not believe in a God that can ordain all things. Therefore, what is the point in praying? No, we pray because God is sovereign. And because God opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And here's the critical thing we're going to look at next week. How are their hearts to be opened through prayer and through the hearing of the gospel? So we pray in the understanding that they have to have their hearts Affected in Acts 16. We also see this in 2 Corinthians. 
4 verse 6. For God who said let, there, let light shine out of darkness. Has shone in our hearts. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. In the face of Jesus Christ. By the same power and authority that God called. The existence of light into the darkness in this world. Is the same power and authority that God has. To call into existence the light that has to shine. On the darkened dead heart. Enslaved to the sin and to the nature of this God to the God of this world, that is the same authority and power that we have to pray to and understand. And finally, in Ezekiel 36, 26, and I will give you a new heart. Praise be to Jesus for that. He gives us a new heart and he will hear your prayer and give whoever it is that you want to see saved a new heart because he is completely in control. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So why do we pray in the midst of a God who is sovereign? Because there's no other way to pray unless God has complete authority, complete control over every single individual, over even their own heart's desire. How can it be that someone today who is sitting in the midst of a drug den, shooting heroin into his veins, happy to the point of that moment whenever that hits his veins, how can that person ever choose of his own free will to walk out of that place and to say that Jesus Christ is a greater treasure? He cannot because he's enslaved. How can the person who's an alcoholic, how can the person who is a liar, how can the person who's a fornicator, how can the person, how can anybody come to the understanding that Jesus Christ is a greater treasure than the things of this world unless God, who is completely in control, reaches out his sovereign hand through sovereign grace and mercy. Not because of anything that they did, simply because he chooses to. Because he heard maybe your prayer. How does he fold our prayers into his life the same way that we see through Hezekiah and everything else? We have to, we must pray for communion with God and for the answers of our prayers. There's great power in the prayers of the righteous. And we sit here today who believe in Jesus Christ are righteous, not by our own works, but by the work of the cross. Therefore, our prayers are mighty in the work. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning in the understanding that you're hearing our prayers right now, Lord. In the understanding, Father God, that you take our prayers, Lord, and you fold them in ways that we cannot even comprehend into your sovereign decreed will, Father. God, we pray that you, Lord, will look upon the frailty of our minds, God. And that you, Father, will have mercy upon us to help us, God, understand who you are. To help us understand the power of prayer. To help us understand your sovereign hand in the midst of every single tragedy, in the midst of every single thing that comes to pass, Father. Although the devil may use it, I'm trying to use it to cause pain and hurt and distress and sorrow. Praise your name, Lord. You allowed it to come to pass so that you, Father God, can be magnified and glorified and that you will use it to bring all things for good. Father, that is the God that we worship this morning. 
We praise you, Lord, that it is not us who are sovereign. It is not us who are in control, Father God, but it is you, Lord, and you alone. Father, every other God has fallen by the hands of man, but you, O God, will never fall. Father, we know, Lord, from the truth of your word, there is coming a day, Lord, that we look forward to whenever we will fully understand the depths of your word, fully understand the depths of who you are, Father, whenever we are with you, God, in the heavenlies, Lord, forever and ever. Father, that is the promise that is given to us by your word, Father. And that is a promise that can only stand through the decree of you, God, who is sovereignly in control. That no one, Lord, can pluck us from your hand, Father God. That nothing, Lord, will ever come to pass in our life or any other, Lord, that is not within your decreed sovereign will. Father, let us cling to that and let us understand that that, Lord, is what makes you God. Father, help us to understand the importance of prayer. Let us not listen to the demonic that wants to twist your word and tell us the lies that what is the point in praying for Father God, the greatest tool that we have as brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of you is to come before you, God, and for you to hear our plea, for you to hear our cry, and for you to see our tears, Lord. Father God, you heard the cry of your people in Egypt, Lord. You heard the cry of the people throughout the Old Testament, Father God, and you hear our cry this morning. Father, we lift up and we cry out for those who do not know you yet in our family circles, Lord. Father, we lift up the people in our mile, Lord, who are completely darkened and hardened and in, in, in death and trespasses, Father God, who are completely enslaved to the principalities of this world, Lord, the devil and the demonic. And Father, we pray this morning that your hand would be outstretched, that you would show your mercy upon the people of our man, our families, and that you would lead them and draw them to yourself through Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you hear our words this morning, Lord. Not by our names, Lord, but by the authority given to us by your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name, Lord, in his name alone. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.